way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also ate the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kristen. All right, so we have an opportunity, a treat this morning. Uh, so one of the things we want to do as a church is to be an equipping ground, uh, not just for the congregation, but to equip, to help equip future ministers. And so back last summer in July, uh, Jared Wheeler, who's with us this morning, he, he visited uh, was knew Mike Dodson, and Mike Dodson invited him, and he came, and we began meeting. And it wasn't very long before he expressed to me this sense that God was calling him to ministry. And so for the last six, nine months, he's been exploring seminary. We've been meeting on a regular basis to kind of think through uh, together and pray together through the call of ministry and what that means. And we've also, he's, he's a community builder leader, so we're, we're, we're trying to, as he explores this call to ministry, give opportunity for Jared to exercise the gifts of ministry. And this morning, Jared is going to be preaching for us. And so I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I've read through the sermon. He did a great job uh, putting it together. Um, and I'm going to pray for you, Jared, and then we'll have you come on up, Okay. Let me pray, pray for us. Our Father, we give you thanks that you come to us. Even though in the bushes, even though hiding, even though filled with um, uncleanliness and, and, and not worthy of your presence, you continue to pursue us. Um, and you give us your spirit to cleanse, to wash, to forgive, to empower and I pray that your spirit would work through the preaching of your word, which we are about to experience, that you would speak through Jared, any nerves or any excitement, that you would, you would calm him and, and speak through him and speak, speak through your word, your uh, precious word, which contains treasures uh, that give us life. So we, we pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you, Casey. I appreciate that. Uh, Taylor wanted to make sure this morning that Casey introduced me, just so the visitors wouldn't think you were stuck with me every week. Uh, so I'm glad that he did that. But um, I think this is probably a pretty familiar story for most of us. I know this is definitely one uh, that I grew up with. And, you know, at first when me and Casey talked about preaching and he told me I was going to do When Jesus Feeds the 5,000, I was maybe a little underwhelmed, a little disappointed because it was so familiar and I was hoping I would get something just really juicy, uh, just a really complex thing to unpack with you. But I think as I went through this, I kind of figured out that when we learn this story as children, we kind of glaze over it and we say, wow, Jesus fed the crowds, you know, Jesus is going to take care of us. And then we kind of move on and those things are all true. I definitely know that they are, but I wanted to kind of go through maybe and give a different lens to it. Uh, so I think to start, I want to make sure that I say the takeaway at the end of this is that Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. And they pronounce certain things of who they want Jesus to be, but I hope I unpack a little bit of, of what that means and maybe where they went wrong. And if I could start with a story, I, I think I figured it out this week and even weeks leading up to this, uh, so I wrote the sermon, and as I was finishing the sermon the very first time, my brand new computer crashed. Uh, and so I took this computer into Apple. They kept it for two weeks. Uh, it was a little frustrating. And then I got the computer back, and I was like, okay, you know, this is a week out from the sermon. I can make any edits. Me and Casey talked through it. And uh, wouldn't you know it, as soon as I sit down to make the edits, the computer crashes again. Uh, and then on my way to take it in this time, I took a bad turn in the truck and shattered the screen. So it was unfortunate that all this fell apart. Uh, and then this week as well, as I'm trying to sit down and write the sermon, I'm cleaning my glasses and they just snap in half. Uh, and with that, with my, I'm like, well, I have my contacts. This whole week, my left eye will not take the contact. So these are about three prescriptions ago. If I can't see you, if I don't look at you in the back, it's because I can't tell who you are, really. Um, and I, I say that to make a joke because I was very upset about it, and I told Casey, and I was already nervous as it was, but I had a piece about it this week that it was just kind of the Lord's... Well, it could have been two things. I told Casey, either the Lord didn't want me to preach, he knew I wasn't ready, or this was just so powerful that Satan was afraid for it to be preached and, you know, the roof is going to burn and the revival is going to start here. Um, I think it could be either of them, but I had a piece of it was really just the Lord was like, I need you to trust me with this. And I, you know, as soon as I sit down to write the sermon, then I get the $1,400 check and then I would be tempted to online shop and all these different things. And he said, no distractions this week. And the, the edits that I made, I had to hand write, which was just felt like such an inconvenience. But he's like, I want you to be with me this week. And I want you to rely on me. And I don't want you to be distracted. And so I hope that's kind of the takeaway from this. And I definitely felt that this week. But to start off, again, this is a familiar story. And I think we read through it and we just move on. And I don't think we understand how important this is to Jesus' ministry. And I want to make sure that I credit John MacArthur with this because I realized this when I was reading an article from him 
there's different miracles that Jesus performs. And the most popular of those are the restorative and transformative miracles. And so the restorative would be restoring of sight. He's literally restoring something to someone. And the transformative would be transforming something into something else. So the water into wine. And when we look at that, there's a very big theme created with those miracles. And then you look at this one, and this is something different. This is a creative miracle. And so you notice the false prophets of today, the the traveling healers and the ones that pull out demons, supposedly, and these things, they don't touch this one. They go after the transformative, and they go after the restorative, and they try to do it in a false way. But they know you cannot touch this one. This one requires something different. And when you look at this, this creative miracle puts Jesus' godhood, his godness on full display. And so when we graze over this, it can be such a disservice with this because we say, this is where we see it on full display. And so I want to make sure that we're looking at it with that context. And then even better, he says, I'm going to put my Godhead on full display and I'm going to make sure there are thousands to see it. This will not be disputed. So he goes on the mountain here and he looks out and everyone can see him and he performs this miracle. And he says, this is one that thousands will see and this will not be disputed because I am God and I will perform this creative. And I think it's important that we look at this as well and we go, Well, this is one of the stories that's in all four of the Gospels. Outside of Jesus' resurrection, this is one that the Spirit went out of His way to make sure that every one of the Gospels, that you read this story. And I think that's exactly why, because He says, this is where you see my most pure form of Godship. And we see it in all the miracles. But I just want to point that out. And I think it's important that God doesn't just repeat himself for no reason. So when he goes out of his way to put this in all four accounts, I think it's definitely important. So looking at the text here, I'll kind of just take it through the verses if that's okay. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. So the Sea of Tiberias here is also the Sea of Galilee. It's another name that they're using for it just to give you the context. And he starts off with this. and He just points out that they had seen these other miracles. They had been piqued. Their interest had been piqued by seeing these other miracles. And they say, well, I want to see a little bit more of this guy. I want to see what's going on with Jesus here. And so they follow him into this and and it's getting laid into it. They know. Most of them know that they did not bring a meal. But they look at it, and I don't want to give them too much credit because they still draw the wrong conclusion about who Christ is. But they're following knowing, I may not eat tonight, but I'm so interested in who this person Jesus is that I need to see more of him. And so as we go on and we move into chapter 4, hey, John tells us, now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was near. And this is a detail that you can glaze over. But again, I think it's very literal of why John wants to include this. So let's backtrack a little bit to why the Passover. Hey, why are you bringing this in? How does this relate to this? Well, if you go back to it, where do we get this idea of the Passover feast? Well, if you go back to Exodus 11 and 12, 
This is the story of the Jews in bondage in Egypt. And in this bondage, the Lord raises up one, Moses, who comes in and says, yeah, I want to take these people. I want to bring the people back to the promised land for the Lord. And of course, Pharaoh says no. And so there are plagues sent upon Egypt with this. And there's a particular one where the Lord chooses to take the firstborn of anyone who has not marked the door with the Lamb's blood. So the Lord would literally in this pass over those that did not mark the door with the Lamb's blood. And so we look at this. The big theme of this is Jesus is called the Passover Lamb. right? We are marked with His blood and we're passed over in judgment. But looking at this, this becomes a major Jewish holiday. This becomes a major Jewish festival and feast and this time of intense pride. And so they're on high alert. They're looking for this. And then you look, well, what are they being delivered of in the first Passover? The bondage from Egypt. Well, they're convinced they're now under the bondage of the Romans. And so as he is going to perform this miracle, there's a high alert. We're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the one that will deliver us from this second bondage that we've come over from the Romans. Right? It would be like us on July 3rd and 4th. If you tried to pass a new wave of taxes on July 3rd, it's not going to happen. Hey, you need to wait. We're on high alert. We are intensely American. We are paying much more attention on those. So for them, they're looking at this. They're saying, we are looking. And these miracles that we have seen, we want to see more of him. We want to see if he's the one being talked about here. And you'll notice they decide that it's Jesus. They just don't quite understand the context of of what he is doing, of how he is coming. So we move to verses 5 through 9. Excuse me, as my Bible went the wrong way. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he intended to do. Hey, so he comes to Philip and he says, and I almost pictured at first Jesus with a smirk as he says this. I don't think that that's the case, but he says, well, Philip, what do you think we should do? Right? Imagine Jesus, the Savior, asking you, well, Philip, what do you think we should do? And, and I look at this and I go, Philip, you know, right? You know what Jesus wants to do here. If he's asking you a question, he already has the answer. And I say, surely you know, and we do this all the time on this side of Scripture, I can tell you all the bad things the disciples did. I can't tell you as many of the good, right? Because it's so easy to pick them apart. And so we look at it and he goes, what are we going to do to feed these people? At this point, Philip has seen multiple miracles. He has seen probably more than we see. Because some are just glazed over here. And so he sees this and you go, Philip, surely you know that you're in the presence of the Lord. That something miraculous is going to happen. Right, and so I want to cut Philip a little slack. We call it Jesus feeds the 5,000. If you look in verse 9, excuse me, I think it's verse 10. So the men sat down in number. The men were in number of 5,000. The men. So realistically, this is probably 10 to 20,000 because we're not even counting at that point the women and children. So we look at the 5,000 and I go, Okay, Philip, I'm surely you should have known. But I imagine myself sitting there looking as Philip. I see the 10 to 20, and I go, Lord, I just don't see it. 5,000 maybe, 10 to 20, I don't. 
And so Philip gives the wrong answer here. He says, Lord, I feel the burden of this size of people. And I imagine he's saying, we can't do it. And then he goes on and he says, Lord, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them to even have a little. Right? And so a denarius of the time we look at that and we go, well, 200 coins, right? $200. No, denarius is the average daily wage of a person in Israel. So Philip is not just saying 200 coins. He's saying almost eight months of work. 200 days of work. We could work for 200 days and this group is so large that would not suffice to even give them a little. And so he is just sitting there doubting. He says, I don't see it. We don't even have enough for ourselves some days. But you're asking us how are we going to feed the ten to 20,000 people? So Philip is saying, Lord, I know you're faithful. Are you really that faithful? You may have been 5,000 faithful, but are you ten to 20,000 faithful? And so he doubts it, just like most of us would. I just imagine having 10 to 20 people over for dinner, the burden that that puts on you, and then you do the 10 to 20,000, you say, impossible. Impossible. I don't even want to think about it. It would cause me so much anxiety. But this is not the first time that the Lord has been doubted for something as simple as bread. So if you look at Exodus 16, there's a parallel with this. And when the Lord brings manna from heaven. So in Exodus 16, going back to the Israelites, they are freed from bondage in Egypt. And they have seen the Lord part the Red Sea. They have seen His faithfulness. And then they come out on the other side and they begin to grumble. They say, we're hungry, Moses. We don't like this. We would have rather died in Egypt full than come across the Red Sea and be starving like we are. Right? They had started to doubt his faithfulness. So if you look at Philip, Philip says, I don't see it. And then the Egyptians, excuse me, the Israelites say the same thing. And so we look at the parallel. This will come up several times in this between Moses and Jesus. And so in the accounting of this in Numbers 11, the, the Moses, excuse me, plays the Philip. He says, I don't see it. How did you expect me to bring these people out here and provide for them? He says, what are you going to do? So Jesus is asking this question to Philip, and the Old Testament Moses is asking this to God. And then in Exodus 16.4, the Lord gives his answer. I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Right, And there's this idea that we'll hit on as we get further in this text, but just as Moses doubted, Jesus asked the question. I mean, surely you would think they would know this text. And he says, what should we do? And he goes, oh, just like Moses, you doubted this. So looking at this, if we were going to say pass, fail, Philip fails this test. And so the Lord turns his attention to another and he says, Andrew, probably the same question here. What should we do? And, and Andrew says, Lord, and I, when Andrew first answers, I'm tempted to give a little more credit, but I, I don't know that I can because he says, there's a lad here. It's a small, small lunch that he's brought. And if anything, it's, it's not a great lunch. He says, there's five barley loaves and two fish. If he had stopped there, maybe I'd give him some credit. But he says, but what are these for so many people? 
What would seven things do for 10 to 20,000? And I want to make sure we understand this because when I first read it, I go, barley loaves. It's probably as large as like the loaf of bread that I imagine myself buying today when I go to the grocery store. And if I want to just look at that and I would say, okay, five loaves is still not enough, but okay, that doesn't seem unreasonable. Well, these barley loaves, and I love the way he says this, of course, Sproul knew how to teach to Americans. He said, well, these barley loaves, think of a Twinkie, right? Anywhere else you teach this in the world, they probably would have known barley loaves. But us, we, we have to boil it down to Twinkies. And then I go, well, I'm not a big Twinkies fan, Lord. Like, is there something else that you can boil this down to? But Sproul says, no, these two loaves, I'm sorry, these five loaves were barely the size of Twinkies. And these fish are maybe sardines. And they're not even really sustenance. These fish are to give the barley loaves flavoring. And so then you look at this and you go, well, this lunch doesn't even appeal to me, right? This is barely anything, right? And so Andrew, he's no better than Philip. He goes, listen, there is something here, but it's not even close to enough of what you're looking to do with this. And so he stacks the odds against Christ. He says, listen, this is not going to happen. This is not enough to feed these people, right? Just like we do all the time. We've seen the Lord make a way for us and be faithful to us. And then we come to the slightest inconvenience and we go, this is too big for even you, Lord. I felt that this week. I was like, I got to go get another pair of glasses. And then of course I can't find the prescription. I go, Lord, this is too big for you. And I sit there and stack the odds against them and thank you, Lord, that you don't keep count of the times we doubt. Because if I'm doubting on this side, it's just as much as Philip and Andrew. I'm stacking the odds against him like I do. So Jesus, very cool and collected, he says, listen, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And then Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks. And he says, have the people sit down. Some, some of the scripture, different ones that you'll read will say, have the men recline. So it would be like us. And he would say, go sit at the kitchen table. There's nothing that's been prepared. We have no clue. So you can imagine the confusion of these men probably as they recline to eat. And then they're just sitting there waiting. Like, well, what's going to happen here? And so the Lord in front of everyone, because again, this is a very public miracle. He gives thanks. He makes sure to commune with the Father and the Spirit. And He gives thanks on this mountain and then has the disciples start to pass out this feast. And you can almost imagine the confusion of the disciples because even if I'm one of the disciples, I go, okay, he gave thanks, but there's still not much here. Right? And so the disciples, you can just imagine they keep reaching in, reaching in. And you're kind of like, where is this coming from? Where is this? Right? And some people who try to dispute this say, well, Jesus had hidden some baskets in the mountain. Right? And they go and get this. Well, again, this is why this is very public. I don't see anybody sneak away to go grab baskets. And so they're literally living this miracle as they're pulling these baskets out. And it's not enough to just feed them. Hey, it goes on to say, likewise, they had as much fish and bread as they wanted. So the Lord could have literally just given them a snack, just something to hold them over. But He is so faithful and He is so generous that He gives them to fullness. So they've come out here and He has mercy on them. And He says, I'm not going to just feed you. 
I'm going to give you all that you need. And this is the generosity of Christ that in this, in showing His glory, He says, it's not enough to just give you some. I want to give you as much as you want. And this is the Jesus that we serve. And if, as if that wasn't enough, they then have leftovers enough to fill 12 baskets with this. I love this quote from Leslie Newbigin here when he says, the resources of God are enough and far more than enough for human need. There is a vast surplus which the disciples are instructed to gather for nothing that the Father gives is to be lost. So this overwhelming generosity will not be wasted. It will be saved and then heaped onto someone else. Right? This overwhelming generosity of it. Nothing that the Lord gives will be lost. No one that He gathers to Himself will be lost. And He's so overflowing with generosity here. And so then we come to the final portions of this text. How do the people respond? And so 14, it says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which He had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And then in 15, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. It doesn't seem like bad titles to bestow upon, to bestow upon Christ. Right? They say, he's a prophet. We're going to take him as king. Right? And you go, well, yeah, I've said that Jesus is king. That doesn't seem like the wrong answer here. But they arrive to this, and so I look at the first one and I go, how do you see this and still just think prophet? Nowhere in here does he say, I'm just a prophet. Probably in his teaching, he say, I'm just a prophet. Now, does he use prophetic language when speaking about himself in John? Sure. Is he one who prophesied? Yes. He was the fulfillment of prophecy and also gave us new prophecy that has yet to pass, but will. And so they come to this and I go, the king part I get, but the prophet? How do you just buy into this? You've seen Godness, his godhood, in full display, and you arrive at prophet only? Well, again, let's go back to Moses here. They're tying this in, and you look at this early on. And Moses, in Deuteronomy 18.15, he prophesies about the one to come. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. So if we're assuming that this group is maybe tying this in, they may say, and look at this, this is the one Moses spoke of. And then we go on and we go, well, how does that get you to profit? Well, if you look after some research, they found out that at the time, some of the Jewish teachers had even added something to this prophecy. And I got this from Leslie Newbigin. The Israelites had said, yes, Moses prophesied about another to come. And when this one comes, he will bring manna from heaven. So you remember with Moses, he prayed and the Lord brought down this manna from heaven. And so this soon to come prophet will bring down manna from heaven again. And so you can see how they would jump to this conclusion. They say, we've seen him bring bread from seemingly nowhere. Heaven. This must be the prophet that Moses was talking about. And so they come to this conclusion. They're looking at it, and they're not faulty in this, but they don't give him enough credit. 
right? He is prophesying, but he, if you're going to give him the title of prophet, is the prophet of prophets. Because he himself even describes himself sometimes in prophetic language. But that's not enough. And so then they really get riled up and they say, well, he's a prophet. Let's go ahead and make him king. Right? And then you would think they make him king and Jesus rules and everything gets better. Well, no, that's not, that's not what Jesus does here. They go to make him king and he withdraws from them. The Lord, these people are wanting to make you king. Why did you withdraw from them? And how did they come to this conclusion? You just seemingly see this miracle of food. How are they so ready to prepare the way to make him king? Well, let's go back to the idea of Passover. They are convinced that they are under the bondage of the Romans. And they are convinced that this Messiah is going to be the one to deliver them from this new bondage they have come under. And so they seemingly see the perfect political candidate. Out of nowhere, you have Jesus giving them their heart's desire at the time, which is a meal. He's the perfect provider. He's someone who cares for his people. As R.C. Sproul puts it, he is the culmination in their minds of taking care of them from the cradle to the grave. But they weren't pronouncing him as the king that he was. Leslie Newbigin says, really he was just to them a mascot for the people's liberation. So the problem wasn't calling him king. The problem was what king meant to them. For them, Jesus was a means to an end. He was a political mascot that would rule them. He would help them overcome this bondage of the Romans. And then they'd be done with him. Or just like in the Old Testament, they go right back. And then they'd be waiting for another prophet. And he says, no, no, I am a king. And I am in fact the king of kings, but I will not be any man's mascot. I won't be at all what you're wanting me to be. And so we look at this and we say, well, what title of king would have done? Well, later on in John, when we get there, 18, 36 through 38, he's talking to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius says, are you the king of the Jews? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that it would not be handed over to the Jews, the same ones here that are declaring him king. And then he says, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Pilate says to him, so you are a king. He says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this purpose I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And I love how Pilate answers this. He says, what is truth? Right? But you're looking at the way Jesus declares himself as king. And I look at this and go, king of the Jews wasn't even a good enough title. That's what Pontius Pilate doesn't get here. It's not enough. He will not be the political mascot. He will not just be the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. So bestow the title to him that he deserves. And so I get so frustrated at the end of this with the way that they answered this. But it's so similar to how we would have answered. So what can we take from this text? What is the obvious ones? The obvious one is that Jesus is the perfect provider. And he doesn't just provide, he's an overwhelmingly generous provider. And he's the literal answer to this prophecy. Right, so we look at the end of John 5, 
8, what Casey talked about last week, and it says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. And then it's no mere, it's no by happenstance that then he performs this miracle that clearly points back to Moses. And so he says, Moses is going to accuse you. And they go, oh, okay, okay. And then he performs this miracle that clearly Moses was talking about the one to come, that he is that one. That there is a parallel here to the story of Moses. And they miss it. And so, of course, Moses will be willing to accuse them. But I think the biggest takeaway from this is that you understand the titles that you're giving Christ and what that requires of you. You have to make sure you're following the real version of Christ because this group was following Him literally, but not the Christ that He was. They were following the Christ that He wanted, I'm sorry, that they wanted Him to be. Right? They say, we want you to be a prophet, but we don't want you to actually change us or require anything of us. We go, well, we want you to be king, but just until it's, you know, not burdensome. We want you to be the king that takes care of us. And he says, listen, your titles aren't wrong. It's what they mean to you. And how often do we use these titles and we take them for granted? Right? We say, Lord... Jesus, you are my Lord. Jesus, you are my King. Have you ever listened to someone's testimony and they never mention Jesus' name? You go, what? But you say He's King. How could you possibly not include Him? Have you, can you go a full day without even praying or thinking of Christ? And you go, is He really your King? Is He really your Lord? Or do you just not understand what it entailed? And so my problem with this group is they are looking for the Messiah that they want. And we so often do the same. But we have no clue what it requires of us. So I, if I could go back to this crowd, I would say if you're going to follow Jesus, you better make sure you're looking for the real Jesus. Because what you're doing is taking away from His glory. What you're doing is not nearly enough. What you're saying is not enough. So yes, with this crowd, Jesus is Lord. But if you're going to call Him Lord, you better understand what it entails. Because I lay everything at His feet. I say, Lord, this is Yours. And when I'm tempted to keep some for myself, I ask forgiveness and I say, no, You are Lord. This is Yours. There's no peace of mine that I won't give You. And He is King. But He's not this political mascot. He's not just this convenient King that you get to call on when you want. He is the King of kings. And in the same that you call Him Lord, you say, there is nothing that is not Yours, King. If you were in the old times when we still had kings, you would not go in front of a king and say, I'll give you this much, but no more. Right? And so when you're only tempted to give the king 90 here, they're willing to go a little bit of the way with him. We say, I'm so sorry, king. Here is the 100% that is worthy. It is everything that you are worthy of. And so we have to remember what these titles entail when we say prophet of prophets, king of kings, lord of lords. We don't get to decide who Jesus is, and thank goodness. Because I followed the caricature, the bumper sticker Jesus, for years, and I was so unsatisfied. 
But when I took him 100% and I said, everything that you have, everything that I have is already yours, but I will give it back. And when I am tempted, I will ask your forgiveness and bring it back. So make sure that we're not creating a false Jesus. And that is the problem with the prosperity gospel and all the false gospels that are being taught. It's not Christ. And it's not a Christ I'm interested in. I don't want a Christ who is a genie, as the prosperity gospel would say. I want the living, present Christ. Our idea of what Jesus should or should not be is too small and not nearly glorious enough. So what can we learn from this? We have to understand the weight of the titles that we're using and that we're going to bring things and we're going to put things on Christ. But we have to take a step back and say, let me just take you for who you are. Because it's so much better and so much more than I could have ever imagined. If you don't mind, I'll end us in a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this story. We thank you for getting to witness this miracle where you are so overwhelmingly showing that you are Christ. And we just ask forgiveness for the things that we put on you that we would just take you for who you are. This manna from heaven, as John will go on in this next chapter, to declare this name, this Passover lamb. And so we just thank you. We just ask that you take you, that we would take you for who you are. Amen.